Well, good morning again and welcome to Grumlaw. We are so glad that you are here today. We're so glad that you made uh, Grumlaw another part of your this beautiful summer day. We've been having a pretty incredible summer, haven't we? It's like so stinking warm. Some of you guys complain about the heat. How dare you, okay? And the winter, you better not complain about that either. You gotta choose one side here. Uh, but seriously, we're so glad you decided to show up. Uh, if this is your first time here, uh, we're so thankful that you decided to walk through our doors because listen, we totally get it. We know that walking into a new place uh, can feel intimidating. It can even feel maybe a little bit risky, but we're so cu- glad that you kind of overcame that fear and you decided to walk through our doors. So seriously, thanks for being here. I'd also challenge you, uh, come back at least a handful of times. Don't let this just be like this one-time experience. Come back maybe three or four times. Uh, and I say that not because we're embarrassed of anything going here on today, but because um, every week is a little bit unique. Every week has its own like kind of different flair. And we think that it takes a handful of times to really get a feel of what we're all about here. Uh, and so come back through four times before deciding whether or not, okay, hey, is this a place that I'm going to make a part of my weekly rhythm? Now, we've been having some fun here during the summer at Grumlaw, particularly during this series called At the Lake. And if you weren't here last week, you missed out, all right? And I'm not trying to rub it in. That's actually a lie. I'm totally trying to rub it in. We have some pictures here, what's going on here. Uh, We rolled in an ice cream truck and we just said, hey, you can go get whatever the heck you want out of the ice cream truck. I discovered something last week. You want to make human beings universally happy? (laughs) Bring in an ice cream truck and tell them there is no charge. I mean, young and old alike. I mean, look at this, joy, 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 joy. Nothing but joy on people's faces. It made me think maybe we should buy one of these things and like have it every single Sunday. I saw looks on kids' faces. You could tell that some kids had never been to an ice cream truck before. So that coupled with the fact that it was free, it was like this moment of like, I can pick anything and like it was just completely overwhelming. So anyway, uh, you better come here every single week because you never know what you might miss. We always have kind of something up our sleeve. But if you've not been here for every single week during this series, which probably describes just about every single one of you, you can always go to grumlaw.com slash messages, and you can't get a bomb pop or like a choco taco there, but you can at least get the messages. You can either listen or watch the messages there. Uh, a lot of you take advantage of that. You can also find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you might grab your podcasts. And uh, we say that intentionally because it's so easy in the summer to kind of like step back and get completely disengaged with church because you might only be here like once a month. And listen, I know that schedules are busy and I know there's vacations, but I'd really challenge you, if you're not able to be here on those Sunday mornings, make sure you're going online, you're either listening or watching there. We know a lot of you are taking advantage of that. So today, we continue in our series called At the Lake, and if you weren't here last week, I'm going to kind of give you the quick 30-second recap of what went down last week. Uh, We took a look at a particular event where Jesus and his disciples, his 12 best friends, they crossed to the opposite side of this big lake, this big body of water. In fact, it's actually the Sea of Galilee. It's about an eight-mile journey, and somewhere along that journey, this massive storm comes up out of nowhere. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a real place that you could still go visit to this day, and it's still known for that, these these storms that kind of come seemingly out of nowhere. And so the storm comes out of nowhere and and the disciples go into a complete panic. They think they are going to die. They think they're going to drown at sea. And then one of them or two of them, we don't really know exactly how that all went down, but they're like, where in the heck is Jesus? And they start looking around. They think maybe he fell overboard, but then they find him in the ship. And when do you know it? Jesus is sleeping, which it's a bit of a head scratcher, but anyway, they wake him up and they're like, Jesus, Jesus. And they're in a panic. They're like, don't you care? I mean, don't you care that we are going to drown out here? Don't you think, care that we are going to die at sea? And Jesus wakes up and he starts shushing. But he doesn't shush the disciples. He starts shushing the weather. He tells the waves to relax. And he, and he tells, you know, this storm to just be quiet. And wouldn't you know it, the weather actually listens. 
He talks to the weather and the weather listens and it goes completely calm. Now we are challenged through that when we face storms in our lives, and not literal storms, right? Not thunder and lightning and you know, waves crashing into a boat. But when we face crises in our life, when we face trials, when we face tribulations, in those moments, you can choose to allow panic and worry to completely consume your life. Or as we were challenged with last week, you can shift your fear off the storm on to the one that calms the storm. And this week, as we move on to part three of the series, we're actually gonna be taking a look at an event that occurs immediately after uh, Jesus calms the storm. In fact, as soon as the disciples and Jesus arrive to the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, this is exactly what happens. Now, quick side note here, the Sea of Galilee is indeed a lake because I get these emails during the week from people and they're like, you're an idiot. You should have called it at the sea, not at the lake. What is wrong with you? All you talk about is the Sea of Galilee. Can you believe I get emails like that? I'm just kidding. Nobody sent me that. But just for the sake of clarification, it is indeed a lake. In fact, it's often referred to as Lake Gennesaret or Lake Tiberias, which makes me really happy because I don't know about all of you, but I don't really like salt water. Not a fan. Gets in your eyes, kind of burns. When I was a little kid, I had this thing called eczema. You dip me into salt water. It's like dipping a regular kid into a volcano. Wasn't interested in salt water. Now, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but this is, you know, quick side note here. Do you know that uh, Lake Superior, which is our largest great lake, uh, is actually technically classified as an inland sea? It's the largest body of fresh water that we find anywhere in, in our world. And so we're calling lakes seas and seas lakes. Our world's a pretty messed up place, but this is the kind of valuable information that you find when you're researching for sermons. But anyway, Getting back on track, uh, Jesus calms the, the storm, right? They travel to the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. Again, it's about an eight-mile journey from one side to the other. Um, and immediately, as soon as they arrive on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, they're greeted by a pretty interesting guy. They're greeted by, in Scripture, it tells us, by a demon-possessed man. Now, if you're anything like me, in Scripture, we see this all the time, that people that were literally possessed by demonic spirits. They were literally possessed by demons. And we just kind of breeze through this stuff. I think we just kind of assume that this is like old Bible stuff. And we don't really even want to give that a second thought because that's kind of like weirdo stuff, right? That's like cuckoo, like churchy things. That's stranger things type thinking. We don't want to believe that there's like actually people that are possessed by demons. And so for the sake of our conversation today, when we talk about demons, I'm kind of alluding to those, those strange habits that we all have for some of us, we might call them vices or addictions, these things that maybe you're not particularly proud of, these sins that are kind of in your life, and you're like, yeah, this has kind of developed more into just like this one-time thing. This has become like a habit in my life. Maybe for some of you, you struggle with things like this. Take a look. My name's Adele. I'm 30 years old. I'm from Bradenton, Florida, and my addiction is eating couch cushions. My name is Josh, I'm 27, I live in Worcester, Ohio, and I'm addicted to eating glass. My name is Keisha, I'm 34 years old, and I love eating toilet paper. My name is Teresa, I'm 44 years old, I'm from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and I'm addicted to smelling gasoline. I'm Bianca and I'm addicted to eating pottery. I can't. My name is Margaret and I'm 53 years old. I live in Morning View, Kentucky, and I'm addicted to stinging myself with bees. My name is Lisa. I'm 43 years old. I live in Detroit, Michigan, and I'm addicted to eating cat hair. My name is Bria. 
eating sand. My name is Kevin. I'm 27 years old. I live in a suburb of Chicago. I don't have any broken bones, but I'm addicted to putting orthopedic casts on my body. My name is Evelyn. I'm 27 years old. I live in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and I'm addicted to drinking air freshener. My name is Nathaniel. I'm 27 years old. And I'm in a serious relationship with my car. needed evidence that our world really needs Jesus. It's like, all right, there you go. It's like, what the heck? Now, I have the best view for that. You guys' face is like, what the heck? If you've never seen that show before, that's like especially appalling, but I think these are real people. I don't think they're actors. It seems to be true. Now, hopefully you guys aren't, you know, drinking air freshener and uh, eating cat hair. I mean, you could think about that, just like start gagging. We need to find that woman and get her a church. But here's the truth. Uh, we do all, and I know it's not gotten to that level of extreme, so to bring it around here, we do all have certain kind of sins in our lives, sin or sins in our lives, these strange habits, these addictions, these vices uh, that exist in our lives that have really grabbed a hold of us. We all have these, these demons, and when I say demon, I, I'm talking about that sin, that thing that you've really never been able to totally shake, that habit that you haven't even really come to grips with and started referring to it as sin because if you call it sin, then that means that it's wrong. And if it's wrong, then that means that you have to start to deal with it and you're not really ready to take that step. That bad habit that maybe you've carried with you since college that you figured, you know, post-graduation would just kind of naturally go away, but here you are years later and you're still dealing with it. Or maybe it's that embarrassing thing that just a couple people know about or actually like nobody knows about, that addiction that maybe people have expressed concern over, but you've been really, really dismissive of. Now, keep in mind, this isn't just a Christian thing. This isn't just like a Jesus follower thing. No matter where you find yourself on this faith journey, you know exactly what I'm talking about because every single one of us, we all have built inside of us this intuitive thing that tells us what is right and it tells us what is wrong. We commonly refer to this thing as our conscience. And this morning, when I say that sin, whether you are a Jesus follower or not, that demon immediately jumps to mind. You had to give it almost no thought because you know. Now, for some of us, again, it might be something like materialism, this whole idea of kind of keeping up with the Joneses and your image. I mean, you're like obsessed with your image. It could be lust. It could be pornography. It might be a lack of compassion. It could be uh, arrogance. It might be money. It might be some hidden prejudice that you have deep down inside. It might be lying. It could be alcoholism. It could be abusing prescription medication. It could be something that virtually everyone knows about you. Or it could be something that you've worked really, really hard to kind of keep a secret. But we all have these addictions. We all have these little demons inside of us. Maybe for some of you, it's something you think seemingly pretty innocent, like caffeine. And you almost boast about it. You're like, don't even talk to me in the morning until I get my cup of coffee, right? It's like you're almost proud of that little demon. Or it could be something that's obviously far more serious. Now, my demon in my younger years, and, and this is so embarrassing to talk about this, but uh, hopefully you all extend me grace. Uh, in my high school years, and unfortunately even heading into college, it was image. Like I was so obsessed with the way that I looked and how people perceived me. I was so like focused on wearing the right brands and only certain brands. And it got to this point, this kind of extreme in my life, 
where I would judge people all the time, sometimes internally and oftentimes out loud. I'd make fun of people based on what they were wearing. And, and I would cast this judgment. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you would wear that. And, and like I had this whole kind of hidden rule book in, inside of my head. Now my sophomore year of high school, uh, I, I worked a job at a feed store, didn't make a, a lot of money. Um, so it took me a while to save up money. And I'd saved up about $500. I don't know, it probably took a couple of months to save up this money. And I promptly went to Sunglass Hut at the mall and spent $400. $80 on a pair of Prada sunglasses. <sighs> now, if you don't know what Prada is, that's probably a good thing. Prada is this brand that people buy to make themselves feel better about themselves. No, okay, I don't actually know if that's true, but uh, pitiful, really, really expensive stuff. And so I get these sunglasses and I think that I am like, whoo, I think I am something. So right after that, I go to a graduation party uh, for a friend that was a little bit older than me, and I knew that a bunch of my friends would be there, and you better believe that, like, I made sure that people knew that I had these new Prada sunglasses on. So back then, I had, like, this long, like, Bieber-esque hair. Uh, I probably had a popped collar. Oh, my gosh, I was such a tool. And I have these Prada sunglasses on, and so I go rolling into this graduation party. I'm like, what's up? You know, I want to make sure that people see that there's Prada written on the side of these things. Now, not too long after I'm in this party, my friend Stephanie, who is, like, High maintenance would have not began to describe this, this young lady, um, but she comes up to me and she notices the Prada sunglasses, which I'm naturally pretty excited about, and she kind of takes a closer look at them and she goes, are those Pradas? And she talked like that. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> this is, again, me in high school, pretty pitiful. And then she takes a closer look and she goes, those are fakes. Now, in that moment, there are a few things that you could have said to me that would have gotten me more wound up than telling me that the sunglasses that I just purchased for $480 were fakes. They were real. And so here me and Stephanie are in the middle of this party getting into a heated argument as to whether these sunglasses were authentic or not. Again, extend me some grace. Now, as ridiculous as that sounds, and mind you, it is completely ridiculous, it was my demon it was this vice, like, I would love to tell you that once I realized, man, this has really kind of grabbed a hold of my life, that I woke up the next day and it was just gone, but it wasn't. It kind of took, like, months for me to sort of, like, deprogram my brain and kind of get out of these really, really te terrible habits uh, that I had developed. It was a tough kind of addiction, a tough demon for me to kick. And many of you who are sitting here today, you're probably equally embarrassing or even more embarrassing demons in your lives, addictions that you would actually never talk about out loud. Now, as I thought about this and I was prepared for this and I thought about these demons and these habits, these vices that we all struggle with, I think we essentially deal with our, our demons in three ways. And uh, number one, we fail to recognize they exist. It's like a sheer ignorance thing. You don't even recognize that this is an issue in your life. Uh, maybe it's been something that you've learned from a parent, from a friend. You don't even recognize that this is like a thing in your life. Other people might see it, but it's never even been pointed out to you. You genuinely do not know. Two, you acknowledge and you ignore them. People, people that love you well enough have told you, hey, do you know that this is kind of like a part of your life? Do you realize that this is kind of like creeped up in your life, but you've been super dismissive of it? You're like, no, it's just not that big of a deal. Or maybe if you're honest, you still kind of like that vice. You like that addiction a little bit too much. It's still kind of a thing in your life that you're like, I'm not totally ready to let that go. And so you ignore them. Or three, you acknowledge them and you actually take action. You have had this pointed out to you. Maybe you've you know, had this moment, kind of the self-revelation. You're like, oh my gosh, this has like become a part of my life and you're actually taking action to get this thing out of your life. Now, as you probably already know, you don't need to be super smart to figure this out. Um, two of these options, not so great. One of these options, really good. Two of these options lead to a less than ideal life. 
And one of these options actually leads to a far better life. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at this event that occurs immediately after Jesus arrives to the other side of Sea of Galilee. And you're going to see kind of how this all ties in here in just a minute. And we're going to look at this count here from Mark chapter 5. Now, Mark is one of the four books that documents Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three, actually, of the gospel writers document the event that we're going to be taking a look at today. So keep in mind, again, Jesus and the disciples, they've just went through this crazy ordeal. They have just arrived to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and this is what happens when that occurs. Verse 1 of chapter 5 in Mark, it says, So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. So they just crossed this massive lake. Again, it was a crazy, you know, ordeal that they had just been through. I mean, the disciples have to be both physically and emotionally exhausted. They thought they were going to die. They have just arrived uh, to the other side of the lake. Now, keep in mind, where they were just coming from on the other side of the lake, uh, they were talking to a largely religious audience. They were talking to largely Jewish uh, people. Now when they cross the other side of the lake, it might as well be the other side of the world because now they are going over and they're talking to a Gentile audience. Now Gentile is a term that we've seen thrown around all throughout scripture and it simply means non-Jew. So my guess is that just about everybody sitting here today is actually a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. Unless you're a Jewish individual, um, you're, you're a Gentile. And this is a very largely non-religious group of people. And this is one of the things that I love about Jesus. When he was here on earth, he did not put all of his eggs into one basket. He didn't just focus on the religious people, which, by the way, drove the religious people nuts. He didn't just focus on the non-religious people. He seemed to show an equal concern for both. It's one of the things that I love about the culture that's developing here at Grumlaw. On any given Sunday, yeah, you will definitely meet people that have attended church for their entire lives, but you will meet an equal number of people that are just beginning to explore this whole Christianity thing. You, you meet people who stepped away from church for a huge chunk of their lives, and now they're back, and they're starting to re-engage. You see people people that are seemingly on every little point along this whole faith journey. Continues in faith in verse number two, it says, when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit, possessed by a demon, came out from the tombs to meet them. So try to picture this with me, all right? The boat lands, that they are beat like crazy exhausted because of the journey that they have just went through, that they're really, really tired. They thought they were gonna die. They thought they're gonna drown. And immediately, like the second that the boat begins to hit the bottom, it begins to hit the beach, they, are, they are come out and this lunatic greets them, this demon-possessed man. Now keep in mind, from an appearance standpoint, this guy would have been terrifying looking. We read a couple verses later that this guy was regularly mutilating his own body, so he would have been bloody, he would have been dirty, uh, he actually was naked when he comes running up to the boat, uh, he was living among the burial caves, so I guarantee you that he did not smell very good, like back then if they had CPLs, all the apostles would have had their hands on their hip, like ready to draw on this guy. He would have been terrifying from an appearance standpoint, not to mention again that they were just exhausted, they were ready for a break. Over the 4th of July holiday, my family and I, we took the whole week off, it was awesome, we do this every Every year over the 4th of July, uh, my brothers, my sister, their families, my parents, and we just go up north and, you know, have a week where we just completely unplug and completely relax. Um, and any of you that have young kids, you know this, and it, it sounds like, you know, just like the lamest thing to say, but by the end of a vacation, you're like ready for another vacation. You're just really tired because you've been chasing around like your one-year-old and your two-year-old, and you've been laying in the sun all day, and, you know, at the end of the day, you're just ready to just fall asleep. Well, so it's Thursday. We've been up there since Sunday evening, um, and so it's Thursday now, and I'm pretty tired. It's about five o'clock in the day. My wife is back cooking dinner, and my kids are both taking naps, and I'm on the beach with my niece, uh, Avery, who's eight years old, and my mom and my brother. 
and I have laid, just laid a towel out on the beach and I'm ready to fall asleep. I'm literally like laying on this thing. I hear the waves crashing, nice little breeze coming in. I mean, just try to picture that with me. Don't fall asleep, right? And I'm laying there and I'm ready to kind of doze off. And all of a sudden, my little niece gets like this far from my face with my eyes closed. She goes, hey, Uncle Shay. I'm like, yeah, what's up? She's like, hey, you want to swim out to the sandbar with me? I'm like, not at all, not even a little bit. But you know how eight-year-old nieces are, right? They kind of have a way of wearing you down. She keeps begging me. I'm like, fine, I'll go out there. And there were a lot of reasons I didn't want to do it. It was about 100 yards out to get to this sandbar. You had to get to a point where it was like a 50-yard stretch where water was well over your head. And Lake Michigan never gets that warm, right? Especially when you're in northern Michigan. It's pretty stinking cold, actually. I didn't want to get in the water. It wasn't that warm by that point of the day. And so, you know, here I am walking into the water. Like, gosh, it's so stinking cold. And then I'm swimming, and I'm like... Whew, this looks a lot closer from the shore. And then we get out there, and we're at the sandbar, we're just like knee deep in water, and it's kind of breezy, and I'm cold. And she's like, isn't this fun? And I'm like, no, not really. This is pretty terrible, if I'm being honest, but I didn't tell her that, right? And then it's just like, okay, there we are. And I was ready for a break. I just wanted to, to sleep on the beach. Both my kids were sleeping. I was ready to just relax. And this is exactly what's going on with the disciples and Jesus. They're just ready for a break. And here comes this demon-possessed lunatic that comes running up the boat. And he's like, hey, you guys want to go out to the sandbar? No, he didn't say that. But it says, this man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, I mean, they're trying to control him, he snapped the chains. I mean, think about that. He snapped the chains from his wrists and he smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp Stone. So Marx gives us, uh, the writer here, he gives us some pretty incredible detail about this man. He tries to give us a pretty good mental image of what's going on in this guy's life. This guy without Jesus was completely and utterly hopeless. He had zero contact with society, none whatsoever. When it says here that he lived in the burial caves, you guys, we don't have a good comparison of that in our kind of modern Western minds. Like, you didn't live in the burial caves by choice. You only lived there if the society had just completely rejected you. If you had been completely abandoned by society. As I thought about this and I was preparing for this, the, the best you know, comparison that I can give you and put it in equal terms is if you met someone and I mean they just stunk to high heaven. From an appearance standpoint, they looked awful. And then they disclosed to you that they actually lived in a landfill. They were like secretly living in a landfill. But even that doesn't really do it justice because all of us would choose living among trash as opposed to living among dead bodies. I mean, it was as low as low as you could have possibly gotten. Day and night, this guy would destroy his own body because of these demons. It shows us here, we get a glimpse into just the, the stark difference between Satan and Jesus. See, see Satan always seeks to destroy. Jesus always seeks to restore. No matter how good that vice, no matter how good that addiction, that habit feels in the moment, make no mistake about it. Satan always, always seeks to destroy. But Jesus is hope. Jesus is for you. Jesus always seeks to restore. It continues, it says, when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, the demon-possessed man, ran to meet him and bowed low before him. 
Notice that, not the other way around. With a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So this demon recognized who Jesus was in the midst of a, a society and a group of people who were still had not come to terms with the fact that Jesus was indeed the son of the most high God. It says, in the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion because there are many of us inside this man. So it's not just one demon, but many demons living inside this guy. It says, then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. Again, they're seeking permission from Jesus. So Jesus gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd, the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake, into the Sea of Galilee, and they drowned in the water. Now, I have heard this story many times in my life. I grew up going to church. I'm one of those kids. I've heard this talked about, heard it in Sunday school back when I was five years old. I hear it now when I'm, you know, 31 years old. I've, I've heard it preached on many times. I've heard people speak about it many, many times. And every single time I read this account, hear this account, hear it preached on, listen to it, doesn't matter. Every single time, the exact same thing comes to my mind. And my guess is it's probably the same question that's in your mind right now as well. Uh, even if this is your first time here or whether you've heard it your entire life. Why the pigs? Why the pigs? Like, like seriously, think about that. Why the pigs? I mean, what the heck did those 2,000 pigs do to Jesus? Why would he allow every single one of them to die? I mean, couldn't have Jesus been like, hey, okay, 2,000, that's like a lot of pigs, demons. You're getting a little greedy here. How about you go into like two pigs and just two pigs die? Or maybe, okay, we see that there's a lot of you, you know, a lot of demonic spirits. How about you guys go into like 100 pigs? But seriously, did all 2,000 pigs have to die? I mean, Jesus, seriously, what's your problem? Why would you allow every single one of those pigs to die? And then as I got a little bit older and I started thinking about this, I'm like, oh my goodness, somebody's livelihood, go back, somebody's livelihood rests on those pigs. There was a guy out there where his income, his livelihood was based on those pigs. Can you imagine that dude when somebody told him that every single one of his pigs had died? It's like, hey, Jerry, uh... We were just down at the lake, and I don't mean to alarm you, but your pigs, they jumped off the cliff. He's like, oh, man, I hate it when that happens. How many of them? All of them. What do you mean all of them? Yeah, all 2,000, they went over the cliff. But, you know, you know that guy that was crazy that lived among the burial caves? Well, yeah, he's better now. Oh, that's good, yeah. But there's some demons in them, as it turns out. And this guy came along, and he, he let them go into the pigs. And so, yeah, they're over the cliff, and... They're all dead. So anywho, you have a good day. All right, walk away. I mean, that guy would have been absolutely devastated. And I'm not just making this up. Like every single time I read this story, that's the exact same thing that I think. I always wonder why would Jesus allow this to happen? Why would he allow this to happen? But you know what's really, really interesting? Honestly, almost fascinating when you think about it. Neither Mark, Matthew, or Luke raises this question. 
As I mentioned earlier, this book, uh, this particular event is documented in three different books, uh, three of the four gospel books. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all document this event, and not one of them raise this question. None of them actually show any awareness of the moral questions which so naturally arise in our modern Western culture minds with regard to such a huge loss of animal life or the economic loss inflicted on a seemingly innocent third party. How is that possible? How did none of them think to write, okay, yeah, we should probably answer this question. How did not one of them address this question that so naturally comes to my mind? And I know I'm not alone on this. I've talked to enough people. We all think the exact same thing. Why would he allow every single one of those pigs to die? Now, perhaps, and this could just be my theory today, and you can take it for what it's worth, but it seems to be supported by a lot of theological minds that are far more intelligent than me. Perhaps in our society, we have drifted to a place where people care little for other people. How sad is it, and I'm not pointing the finger at you, I'm pointing the finger at myself. How sad is it that the first thought that comes to my mind is, oh my gosh, what about those pigs? Rather than praise God because a human being has been restored because of Jesus Christ. How sad is it in our society, and I know I'm speaking in in, in broad terms, and I know there's exceptions to this, but for the most part, how pitiful is it that people, for the most part, we care more about our wealth, we we, we care more about our possessions, we care more about our, our property, we care more about our pets than people than human beings. I mean, as I was thinking about this this week, I mean, how sad and embarrassing and, and, and honestly pathetic is it that we see more PSAs, we see more commercials, we see more advertisements, we see more billboards about helping dogs, cats, rhinos, elephants than we do for the 36 million human beings that will die this year alone from starvation. That's a real number. 36 million people, human beings, will die because a very basic human need is not being met. How sad is it that at least, and and this is actually a low estimate, that there are currently, right now in our world, there are 20 million people being trafficked for sex, for labor, in large part children, young boys and young girls. And this isn't like an other side of the world problem. This happens right here in Genesee County. This happens right here in Grand Blanc. This happens right here in our communities. 20 million human beings are being trafficked against their will. And for the most part, if we're honest, we could care less. 2,000 pigs is nothing compared to a human life. A million pigs would be nothing compared to a human life. Every single pig, every single animal on the planet is nothing when compared to a human life. When Jesus came to the earth, when the Son of God was nailed to a cross for you and for me and for every other person on this planet, in that moment, God declared that no place, 
that no building, that no pet, that no possession would ever be more valuable than the person that sits to your left or the person that sits to your right. You are a child of God. You are created in the image of God, in the image of your creator. The value that Jesus places on every single one of you, the value that, that, that Jesus places on us as human beings cannot be measured. It isn't fathomable. It's a love, it, it's a value that, that cannot be contained by human words, by human imagery, by human minds. Satan always seeks to destroy. Jesus always seeks to restore. You know, we, we don't know for certain, and we probably never will know, why Jesus would allow these demons to enter into these pigs, but it is noteworthy that they had to ask, that Jesus had the final say. But regardless, the most important thing to note here is that Jesus stopped their destructive work in a person, in a human being the value that he places on us cannot be measured. It says the herdsmen fled to the nearby, the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened, and a crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane. And they were all afraid. They were terrified. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. They pleaded. They begged for Jesus to go. They were terrified. They had never seen this type of power displayed in such a real and profound way. They too seemed more concerned with their own priorities, with themselves, rather than people. It's really interesting the parallel that can be drawn here. Uh, I already talked about, we, we deal with our demons, I think, in essentially three different ways. Uh, we fail to recognize they exist, we acknowledge and we ignore them, or we acknowledge them and we take action. But here, I think we see kind of this fourth option rear its ugly head. We actually protect them. S someone calls us out, we start maybe to feel a little bit convicted, and we actually nurture and we protect those demons, those habits, those vices. We tell that person to get out of our lives, to mind their own business. It's the same reason that maybe some of you right now, you, you don't particularly want to be here right now. It's the same reason maybe that for some of you, you left your old church, the last place that you used to go to church, because they just wouldn't mind their own business. When people saw what Jesus was capable of, they begged him. I mean, they begged him to leave. And I have to think in that moment, that broke his heart. That that hurt Jesus in a very profound way. And very similarly, when we ignore him, when we ignore the hints that have been placed in our lives, when we ignore the people that have been placed in our lives, that, that start to point those things out in our lives that maybe we're not so proud of, that we're embarrassed of, that those things that have been placed in our lives to try to rid us of those demons, I have to think that it hurts him. It breaks him. 
because again, the value that he places on each of us cannot be measured. And that, that is why he wants these vices, these demons, these addictions out of our lives, the lust, the greed, the materialism, the pride, the arrogance, the possessions, the ego, because he knows that they will lead to destruction. And the God, the God that we talk about here on Sunday mornings, that God is for you not against you. Jesus cares so much about you that he goes to some pretty incredible lengths, to some pretty great extents to try and save us from our demons. And I say this all the time and I'm going to keep saying it because it's so important. The reason that God wants those things out of our lives, the demons, the the vices, the addictions, is because he is for you. He he doesn't ask us to get those things out of our lives because it simply sounds like the right thing to do. It is so much better than that. It's because he wants your life to to, to be better. He truly has your best interest in mind. See, those of us that choose that third option, and unfortunately, that'll be the vast majority of us. Uh, Most people choose the other three, but when you do choose that third option, something pretty incredible happens. And we see what happens with this man. He says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. They're all begging him to leave, and he's begging to go with Jesus. He began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he told them. When we allow Jesus to cure us of those habits and those vices and those addictions, we very quickly see how much better our lives are without them. And you don't need to be a Jesus follower to see this. You don't have to have gone to church your entire life to understand this. Christian or not, when you have kicked a bad habit, have you ever regretted it? Have you ever looked back and thought, man, you know, life was so much better when I was such a liar. I really miss those days. You know, my my life was so much better when I was so controlled by alcohol. You ever met an alcoholic who's two years, three years, four years, five years sober? Like, man, those are the good old days. Looking forward to getting back to drinking again. Man, life was way better then. You ever met somebody that's like, man, yeah, I used to look at pornography all the time, but you know, I'm I'm cured from that now, but I'm kind of looking for some ways to get back into that again. I mean, those are just the good days of my life. Of course not. On August 12th, we're going to have our next baptism service here at Grumlaw, and you're going to hear in in the weeks that follow that service story after story after story of people who have been completely transformed because of Jesus. People that had these demons, these vices, these addictions— And God just like picked these things up and and took them away. And see, when that happens, when a life is completely transformed because of Jesus, you don't see any other thing to do except to share that with others. And when you share your story, people will be amazed. Go back. People will be amazed. People will be amazed at what you tell them. Your story, believe it or not, will help other stories be told. Those first-hand accounts of how lives have been transformed because of Jesus are so powerful. I can get up here and talk about this stuff every single week, but when you hear real people who have been transformed because of Jesus, it is amazing. It is so incredibly powerful. Don't push Jesus away. Don't be so quick 
to dismiss Jesus. Because believe it or not, he actually offers the same healing to you today that he offered to that demon-possessed man thousands of years ago. The value that Jesus places on you, like specifically you, not you in broad terms, but you cannot be measured. 